0: Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. This is Aviv and welcome to this episode of Create New Futures where we develop conversations with thought leaders and with interesting people to explore ideas and practices that can help you create new futures with your family and with your business. To explore with me how I can help you create a new future for your organization, just call or email me directly. Today, I'm speaking with Dan Leahy. Dan is an educator with over 30 years of teaching and consulting experience with a special focus on the emergent capacities of complex adaptive systems. His interdisciplinary work to enable the evolution of an organizational system transcends traditional boundaries. He is intuitive in reading situations and wise in addressing growth opportunities. Dan was the president of the Leadership Institute of Seattle, LEOS, for more than a decade and he is currently the director of the Seattle campus of Saybrook University, where he provides strategic and operational leadership for the campus. His extensive experience includes designing and leading both graduate degree programs as well as corporate training programs. In this conversation with Dan, we explore his calling and his journey with the Leadership Institute of Seattle why to change the world, you begin by changing the conversation and the precious moment when the student eyes light up with a clarity about his or her sense of purpose. I asked Dan about what is audacious leadership and why it is so needed right now. Here then is my conversation with Dan. So Dan, it's great to have you here. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Aviv. It's good to be in the conversation with you again.
0: It's been a while. It's been a while. So my first question is, how are you? It's been a while since you and I interacted last, I believe last summer. Catch me up. What have you been involved in and what, what are you doing these days?
1: Good question. I'd say the highlights are um, I've been in the process of shifting from doing a lot of the teaching work in the graduate program here into the work around developing a leadership institute for Saybrook University. So it's some of it's returning to the roots of the old Legos program. Some of it is looking at what's the uh, evolution of leadership development that's required now, particularly on the heels of the recent election here in this country. Um, another thing that we've been involved in is doing uh, with a colleague uh, an adaptive leadership training program for the Regional Transit Authority up here in the Puget Sound area, Sound Transit, which has been a rich learning experience for all involved, I think.
0: Great, so these are two themes I will thread back into, that is leadership evolution and adaptive leadership as we unfold the conversation. But let me begin by saying that I believe we initially met some 12 or 13 years ago Mm-hmm. And have since interacted in a small group called Souls on Deck. That's a small group of practitioners. And I'm curious, what's your recollection as to how did S.O.D. come together? Souls on Deck come together, and how would you describe the nature of our get-togethers and what we actually do in in these meetings?
1: I don't remember the exact origins. Um my memory suggests that it had a lot to do with um there was a sort of a network of folks in here in the puget sound area that were concerned about um what's been going on in the country um, on the planet in a variety of different ways and um i I'm not sure exactly why it suggested, well, why don't we get together and have a conversation about this? So I invited um, some participants that had gone through a, a leadership program up at the Woodby Institute, um, as well as a few other folks that had gone through another um, event called the Confluence. that was put on by a, a local uh, agency, the Center for Ethical Leadership. My sense was we were all kindred spirits and all were concerned about what was going on politically and what was going on ecologically. So we started meeting about once every six weeks, just to be in a conversation about what's going on and, and what's working us. For me, the framework of that conversation was connected to some work that a colleague of mine had done in his dissertation, which was around which she titled generative communication, which if I think about it, was really anchored in a lot of Martin Buber's notions of I, thou, like what happens when individuals come together in a particular way that allows for new insights, new awarenesses to emerge. And in that course, over the course of time, it seemed like folks would ebb and flow into and out of that conversation, depending on what was going on for them in their lives. So that's my recollection of the beginnings. And um, I really enjoy it. Uh, they're nourished by the, the times we're able to get together.
0: So that's, that's very close to, to the way I would describe the story of coming together. If I attempt to describe souls on deck in conversation, it seems to me that we, we always attempt to translate and to codify the patterns of emergent growth and that we seek to find the, the global in the local and to identify the universal inside the personal and get wiser in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very eloquent. And, that's very good. And there is in this, Dan, a bit of the, what I call, fractal awareness or fractal mindfulness. The fractals, as, as we know, are recurring patterns. And so where for example, the, the micro reveals the the macro, that's what I mean by the personal revealing the universal, there is, there is a way to identify and decode say an anecdote an anecdotal occurrence. Mm-hmm. Say, say there are a number of people around the table and, and a couple of people describe, a challenging conflict that they are going through, or perhaps an exciting breakthrough that they are describing. Mm-hmm. We look to decode and understand the pattern and its inner logic mm-hmm. and find whether there is guidance and or replicable tools in those conversations such that, as you said, we are therefore uh, as present as can be to listen to both what people are describing and also the emergent wisdom that's represented in the experience that people bring to the table. That's how I experience what we are attempting to do in those gatherings.
1: Well, as I listen to you, um, I'm thinking that that, to me, is the gift that you bring, really looking and attending to those particular kind of patterns or fractals. Um, I'm thinking that, uh, Christy, the naturopath, in the group uh, tends to at least from my perspective bring in you know i have a perspective of uh, the V's or the uh, naturopathic approach to how do we understand what's going on in something that's larger than just the human species so there's each person seems to bring a particular perspective that comes from their particular expertise or their lens and that together that weave is, is the kind of um, mosaic that makes a difference.
0: So, the beauty of what you are describing is that because there are different skill sets and different backgrounds and domain expertise around the table, we are able to converse from different perspectives and enhance and enrich each other. And in, in so many ways, that's what we model that can happen in, in any conversation, including in for-profit companies or, or government uh, or any other institution where different people around the table facilitate and enable the, the innate wisdom that's in the system to reveal itself?
1: I think that if it were folks that had a perspective that's similar to mine, I don't know that I would get into that generative place You know, the lenses that I tend to bring into conversations come more from education or leadership development. But, you know, as I listen to you or to Christy or to Anne or or Malcolm, they look at things differently. And I have come to really respect and value that perspective. Um, So when they speak up, I step back and go, oh, I, I hadn't thought about that. Or I don't see it that way. Let me see if I can get more curious and learn more about their perception as compared to my perception.
0: Yes, yes. Which leads me to the signature line in your email that says, change the conversation, change the world. And I thought it's a good place to start by asking you, how do you mean that? And and how do you bring this idea into your practice and into your work?
1: Um, That started back when I, first was introduced to this uh, generative communication or generative conversation framework um, by my colleague, Judy Heinrich. As I listened to her describe it, I began to imagine that if I want to really change the world, i got to change the story. You change the story, then things reorient around that new narrative. Uh, Back in that time, I was still a uh, clinical family therapist. And um, there were a couple of different therapeutic frameworks that really spoke to me, I found myself really drawn towards. One was narrative therapy, another one was known as solution focused therapy, both of which are organized around the notion of how do you identify the exception to the current narrative, um, and begin to encourage the clients to, to focus more on that exception. And then in doing so their situation begins to change and it's more something that they do within themselves and within their families, as opposed to some external expert is telling them or directing them and what they should do. So those things um, continue to influence me. I continue to think that if I'm unhappy with current situation, look for a reframe that incorporates the reality of the situation, but in a way that provides for imagination and innovation.
0: Yes. In, in my book, Dan, Create New Futures, I assert that conversation is the currency of leadership.
1: Yeah, I loved and, reading that, of you. i go, going, okay, this is a book for me. I liked it.
0: <laughs> and, and that to create new, a new future, we must create a new conversation, which is very much the idea in, in your signature line. And I, I propose there that if we stay in the same old conversation, then by design, we'll end up where we are rather than in a new place. Now, the reality is that in a dynamic world, if you actually stay in the same place and resist renewal and, and growth, you're likely to be calcified out of relevance quickly. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why I, I am attracted to your signature line and I'm curious if if this is your experience too, even in what you just uh, related to, in uh, as early in your career in the idea of solution-focused therapy and, and such. I'm actually curious that you tell me a little more about solution-focused therapy, and and even how you got in the first place into focusing on therapy. I believe you were trained as a child and family therapist, and what brought you there. And how did you, through that journey, evolve to identify conversation as, a, as the central tool, the central lever or the central medium through which, with which your work and your gift gets expressed?
1: Uh, that's a big question. I'd say uh, I ended up in the clinical field because I followed uh, a calling, if you will, And by that, I mean someone who I had been in the graduate program with um, went on and submitted a proposal for a particular grant to deal with runaways, the intention being to keep them out of the juvenile court system. And the grant was one that was designed to uh, have a set of practitioners that would work in teams of two. They would take a runaway from the police department any time of the day or night and take them home. And basically stayed there in the home until the family is able to identify what local resources they're going to connect with to address whatever it was that led to the person running away in the first place. So this person was in my graduate class and after graduation, he got that particular grant and then he called me up and said, hey, I think you should apply for this. And I'm going, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to be a school counselor. And he said, no, 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 I think you should apply for this. So I listened and, and applied and I'm thinking, oh, no harm in doing that. The person that uh, interviewed me for that was uh, one of the first four graduates of the program that I was just graduating from. And in in the interview, he said, Okay, I see that you're in the the same program that I just graduated from. This is either going to help you or hurt you in this interview. And I'm going, whoa, okay, this is kind of interesting. So again, I kind of perked up. I got hired and uh, found that to be a very stimulating two and a half years working with families. And then I decided I actually wanted to get more professional training in that. So I, I applied for and got a position at a local mental health center where there was a small group of folks that were really committed to uh, peer consultation so we had a one-way mirror set up there and we would uh, take turns bringing families in front of the one-way mirror each week which led into um, specific training in a variety of different uh, modalities Uh, so i found myself just sort of getting more and more interested in and engaged in the work And it led to um, working at group health co-op, which is a co-op here in the Puget Sound area. Again, with another team of practitioners that did a peer consultation about once a week.
0: So let me ask you, just on on this phase of you working as a therapist, you're being trained, you're being coached and consulted as, as part of a peer, group, what what are the, at this stage of the game, what are the important epiphanies, the important insights that begin to shape your approach, your philosophy to therapy and to those meaningful interactions that you participate in?
1: First thing that comes to mind is being with a, a, a group of peers that I trust and respect. And be in an ongoing conversation about a reflection about my sort of work in the field. Like they literally would view me working with a client or a client system, and then I'd get real direct feedback about that that I found valuable. So there was a like an openness to learning as opposed to I need to convince them that I know what I'm doing. It was more, I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm, I'm open to your feedback about that. So that would be one element, is that ongoing group reflection process.
0: And part of the, pro- the power of this process is that you're so, to speak, on camera, even though the camera was not running, people's eyes were, were on you in real time through this process, correct?
1: Yes, yeah, that was essential. It was not like I'm going to describe um, a session that I had with somebody. It's They actually observed
0: it. Behind you, the know, you know what? It reminds me of being trained in, in the Air Force. In the early days, people would get um, back to the briefing room. And debrief what yeah. happened on the flight before there were cameras, and everybody would tell a different story of what happened <laughs> but there was a, there was a particular time when they brought into the the, the aircraft's cameras when I was trained when I, when I graduated as a fighter pilot that this was already the phase of cameras, so you you could not make up stories too much when you uh, found yourself back in the debrief because essentially we sat down and looked at what the cameras were telling us and you could tell stories a bit around it, but more or less you're Mm -hmm. on camera. So that that was the the objective factual case. And you had that experience in the therapy space because people were looking at you, watching, observing you while you are actually leading the conversation. Mm -hmm. Your reflection, your your body language, your intonation, what are you saying, how you're responding and all that.
1: Yep. I can't hide. And I really respected these folks, which was another key element for me, rather than it was uh, like it was a supervisor, um, somebody I needed to demonstrate competence in front of. These are my peers and my friends. And so their their feedback was is important to me. As I think it was mined for them as well. And it not only develops me as an individual practitioner, but I think it was part of us developing as a a team of practitioners within the, the mental health setting. So it's right. both individual and collective.
0: Right. What what else would you say at this point in your evolution, your learning, are you discovering or articulating for yourself in terms of the, the human condition? and observing the complex system that's called a human being, and especially working with with family dynamics. What what are some other important notations and comments do you offer yourself at that stage as you develop proficiency in the space? Um, I
1: think of a person I consider to be my mentor, uh, Donald Williamson. He is somebody that's very well known in the field of marriage and family therapy in this country. And he wrote a book back in the um, early to mid 80s, The Intimacy Paradox was the name of the book. So he's somebody that is writing about family of origin work and specifically that when you get to a certain stage in life, it's important to begin to rewrite or reauthor your story of your family of origin, of your growing up. And that, that rewrite comes from more of an adult place as opposed to the story that you know, we begin with, which is you know as a child or adolescent or young adult within the family system. So he's somebody that um, I found pretty interesting and compelling um, and is basically saying you can rewrite your story and that it's um, actually a healthy thing for you to do as you develop as a human being. He then is somebody that became a faculty in the Leo's program. So he, he continued to have influence on me as a staff person and as a faculty person during that time. And I still am connected with him. Mm. So there's something about that rewriting one's story is an important um, developmental process to attend to.
0: Right. L- let me see if I internalize the, the central point of the idea What you're describing, I believe, is a a construct where adulthood is perceived as a point where you have a choice, range of choices. And instead of choosing to run through the motions of the, the legacy or inherited script from your family of origin, you make new choices such that you are not replaying the motions that you have experienced in the family in which you you were brought up. Some will call that break out of the karmic pathways of, of your family. Some will describe that as change, indeed, the story. But that's the central idea, recognizing that, that adulthood essentially is graduating yourself to recognize that you have a power of choice. You do not have to repeat the same pain points, the same complexities, the same dynamics that you have experienced in your own family of origin.
1: And I think what was unique to him is that he was really advocating for family of origin interviews. So again, it wasn't on my own in seclusion, I rewrite my story. It's, I actually have a different conversation with my parents with my siblings with my extended family members i uh, inquire about their perspective at certain significant moments in the family history and i share my perspective and it's in that that ongoing conversation or that shift in conversations that the uh, the new story begins to emerge
0: so that's fascinating not only do you change your own story going forward but Ultimately, to change your own story, you'll have to, in essence, trace backward and bring the entire system Mm -hmm. up to date to review and to see their story in a potentially a new light through your own personal evolution, becoming a catalyst for their own growth. Each member or those members that are prepared to join your dance or your exploration.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. that's
0: fascinating. Uh so in all those years we've been speaking that was a piece uh you you've I've never heard about so that that is a fascinating uh therapy uh, strategy and an approach. So how do you then journey from there to Leo's to to the Leadership Institute of Seattle and how do you particularly evolve uh, finding yourself find yourself very interested in this idea of complex human systems and your fascination with working and navigating these in a mature, developing way.
1: I would say my finding myself back in the LEO system after graduating was, again, somebody called me up and said, hey, we got this uh, opportunity I think you should apply for at the time it was what we used to uh, title as a systems therapist so we we would have a staff person at each of the uh, the residential modules that we did which is the way we delivered the curriculum in the program um, to address any sort of emotional upheaval that showed up while folks were in residence when i was a student i was pretty clear once i graduate from this program i don't think i'm going to have anything to do with it because it's It was in its second year, and it was pretty loosey-goosey was the language I used back then. So it was in its formation, and I I don't think I had a lot of confidence in it at that point. So to be called six years after graduation to be the systems therapist for the system was intriguing. So if, if I'm thinking that the program needs help, which I did, then maybe I should put my actions where my mouth is and and actually see if there's something I might do. But they had to ask me three times before I finally said yes. So I did that for several years. And then I said, well, I think I'm ready to be a faculty in the program. I had never taught before, had no training in teaching. So I think that was a pretty audacious and uh, somewhat immature stance to take, shall we say. So in the current director's wisdom, uh, they didn't hire me for the open faculty position and so i said well i'm done doing the systems therapist piece so i think i'll just go back and, and do full-time therapy which is the what was i what i was doing along with the uh, the leo's work then a year later i got a call from the uh, new director at the at leo saying so were you serious about wanting to be a faculty and if so we have a position So I said, well, yeah, I'm serious. So I'll give this a shot. So I I took on the role of being a faculty in in expansion of the program at the time. And I've been here most of the
0: time since then. So your story clearly reveals that you're one of those people that need to be called into your next role. rather
1: Yeah, I I have not been (laughs) successful at going out and finding and seeking out my own particular role. It sort of finds me and I more often than not, I'm reluctantly saying yes to it and then uh, find that it's the right fit or it's the right work.
0: Is that somewhat um, congruent with, with your spiritual beliefs as well?
1: Oh, yeah, that's very good. I was born and raised Catholic, and I come from a very large Irish Catholic family where part of the the ethos in the Irish tradition is that in large families, at least one of the children um, should have a vocation and should be either a priest or a nun. Um, And I was attending the, the Catholic grade school that was connected with the cathedral here in Seattle, which is where the bishop and the archbishop for the region resided. So I ended up being an altar boy there. And I uh, actually was the private altar boy for the Archbishop of Seattle for two or three years. It, during that time, I had the nuns and the priests telling me, you have a vocation. You have a quote unquote calling. So them telling me that my parents say well, the, having a vocation is an important thing in, in the, the Irish Catholic tradition. I, of course, went into the seminary as a freshman in high school and spent a couple of years as a seminarian intending to be a a, uh, parish priest. But along about end of the sophomore year, I figured out that celibacy and um, puberty don't really mix well. Like this notion of what, what, celibate for my entire life? I don't think so. So I left the seminary and um, went on to a, to finish high school in a a, a Jesuit high school here in the Seattle area. But I've always had the sense that I have a calling. uh, And that calling is to somehow work with people in service of the common good.
0: Fascinating story. So um, the uh, celibacy was a disqualifier for, for one path, but the inner deeper calling found expression in a different route and perhaps free of the limitation or the constraints of that, that type of a, a vocation. And my question there, do you find that, that as you then traced your work and evolution through the Leo's programs through the years, was that an opportunity, was that a theatre That in which you were able to access the deepest sense of of calling and what you wanted to do uh, in in the professional arena? I
1: would say yes. If I think back on it, one of the things that was most meaningful to me in working with student learning communities uh, in these residential modules was that a moment when a student's eyes would light up and they seem to become aware of, oh, this is my purpose on the planet. And these particular courses or these particular exercises or this particular assignment is in support of that larger work. It felt like connecting with soul,
0: mm. connecting
1: with the heart and soul of, um, of the work in the moment. And that that would very often happen um, in these conversations, in these group processes in the program. And the changes that seemed to show up once that light went on, I found to be as profound or more profound than anything I saw as a therapist. So it was like, oh, it's it's not so much dependent upon getting quote-unquote therapy as it is about being seen and heard and loved in particular ways. Encouraged to tap into who you're meant to be and then really be it, live it, get support for it.
0: Yes. So my guess is, if I if I hear correctly, there are two parallel paths that you're active uh, in at that time. One is the facilitator, of um, leadership student cohorts uh, in these conversations where you are there to help them access their sense of calling and purpose. And you're also concurrently stepping up into teaching capacity, which runs parallel. Am I describing these two muscles or two uh, ways of showing up correctly as, as two natures of, of your activities at, at that time?
1: Mm -hmm. and i think that over time what happened is that i moved from when i'm doing the quote unquote teaching you know i'm actually delivering some particular content early on i was working hard to deliver the right content in the right way according to the syllabi and the program and things like that later on it was more delivering this particular content is the opportunity to look for, discover the learning moment in the moment. Um, So I think that what I became pretty good at is to identify the dynamic that we were trying to teach in the content, how it was showing up alive in the room. And then later on, it was looking at, and so how is this, conceptual uh, dynamic alive in this room with us in this moment and oh by the way how is this also a microcosm of what's going on outside of this room or this classroom or this community like how is this particular dynamic something that we the people are struggling with on the planet
0: so can you are you able to trace a particular situation or a moment in time when you freed yourself up from that teaching programmatic approach of you thinking that your job is to deliver a specific content to that shift, that pivoting to, I'm here to engage in a discovery process with this group. And the content is more a stage or a set of props that I'm gonna be using and I'm going to trust myself and follow my intuition such that it becomes a discovery process for all involved, including myself. Can you trace? Because at least for the first few times, there is a courageous step. It's almost as though you are saying, I'm, I'm going to let go of something that's that's defined and known, and I'm going to dance in a space that's um, that's much more ambiguous. And, and my question, if you were able to trace how that pivot uh, occurred and, and um, when you said, yep, yeah, that's what I'm here to do.
1: I like that you highlighted that it takes courage. The moment that I think it shifted for me was back in the mid-90s when EOS as an organization, I think, was really struggling with um, how to evolved to the next level. We had a, a small group of faculty that had been there for several years that had invested incredible amounts to keep the program alive as it moved from one affiliation to another and it in my judgment had become somewhat of a closed system. I was a member of what at the time we called ourselves the next generation because we were the like the younger faculty at the time. And as things began to feel more constipated or uh, constricted within the system, I think the more agitated I became in and, the and, uh, folks of this next generation group became because for us, it seemed like we weren't walking our talk as an mm. organization. We were out of our integrity um, and it became intolerable for us. So the choice was we could leave, we could each sort of quit um, or we could find a way to take stands in service of what we think is important. So over the course of, I'd say a year, year and a half, we began to gradually stand up for and call into question some of the patterns that were going on in the system. And ironically, this was the same time when the, the framework of adaptive leadership was introduced into the system. By somebody who's a member of this next generation group that led to um, sort of a catalytic moment um, where the uh, the board got involved um, based on some concerns that were raised and they did a process of interviewing everybody in the system to find out what were the different perspectives. And what they heard is that um, of the 30 some odd folks that were on staff at the time, almost all of them were planning to leave at the end of the contract year hmm. satisfaction. So there was a shift in leadership. Um, the, the board sort of brought about a change. Uh, the board chair took over as the interim president while the national search was underway to find a replacement and they after going to everybody on the faculty who had a PhD to step into the role of the dean of the school they came to me because none of the PhD folks actually wanted to take it on they said will you uh, take on the role of dean and, and help run the school while we go and find a new president. So it was a moment where I could say, well, no, I've never done that before. and I don't want to do that. I just want to teach. And, and I found myself saying, yes. Hmm. And then it was, oh, okay, so now you're the dean. What does that mean? And how do you um, stand for what you think needs to happen as opposed to just trying to maintain what has been done before?
0: Right. Right. So you've had an opportunity then to practice all that you preached, so to speak, and all that was latent in you, you now had a theater of expression. Mm-hmm. And what happened then?
1: Um, a lot of learning. Um, a lot of, um, let me try this. Okay, how'd that work? Okay, they, uh, we're okay, so let's try a little bit more. So it was a lot of tentative experimentation. I think there were certain moments where um, I stepped up and other moments where I really stepped back like this is too much too big I'm not sure I can take this risk right now I had a uh, a particular faculty person who was very much involved with the work of Angelus Arian cultural anthropologist who was at the time doing some work on um, thresholds of collective wisdom and this particular faculty person said, You know, Angela's is going to do this five day intensive on this work uh, up at a local site, uh, and I think you should go. And in fact, I think you might want to take the entire executive team with you. So I did, and uh, there were like five of us on the team that were up there, and I think. I was really struggling with can I really step into leading this place and really sort of challenge and hold accountable some of the team members. I remember it was day four of the five-day retreat and Angela said this is the day where the teams that are part of this intensive will get to have some individualized work. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to have the teams come up here and sit on the rug on the floor in front of uh, myself and her, her colleague. So she had had a chance to listen. That's,
0: that's what I'd call a choreographed crisis. <laughs> no kidding. So she had a chance
1: to listen to all of this over four days, right? And so I remember sitting down on the rug in front of her and her looking me in the eye and basically saying, so I've listened to you for four days. Um, I want you to know that I, I know about your organization, Leo's. I respect it. Um, I think it's been doing good things and I think it's called to do some bigger things on the planet. Um, and I just want to tell you that if you're not willing and able to lead this organization wholeheartedly, get the hell out of the way so that somebody who is can. Mm. So it was like holy Cleveland. So that was a big sort of wake-up call, or uh, sort of calling into question: What am I really willing to invest? How much am I really willing to uh, stand in what I think needs to happen and what I believe in? knowing that it's not the, the truth or the perfection, but a, it is a perspective. Um,
0: so the message there, the big learning there, the, the message there is that half leadership is, is not really an option. If you occupy a certain role, if you are at a, occupying a, a, a leadership role, a leadership position in an important organization, being only half present to that space rather than giving what it calls for, is is really not an option mm-hmm. and 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 in this case you needed somebody from the outside to offer you that that reflection to give you that or offer you that uh, internal awakening and what happened then
1: well I, let me just add a piece that the language of half-hearted was what really got me because it wasn't just a conceptual you know, if I can read in books, and I had read in books that, you know, if you're going to lead, you need to behave in particular ways. But for her to sort of um, anchor it in the heart, like the passion or the, the heart and soul of the work is what really got my attention. I couldn't run away from that because it, to me, related to my calling. So if I'm really going to live my calling, then I have to pay attention to what has heart and soul. And she was basically saying, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. Are you serious or not?
0: And what happened then?
1: From my perspective, we had a very uh, frank, um, different conversation on the rug. Uh, We meaning the the executive team. I was as honest as I could be about what I thought needed to happen. And I was committed to living into that for the next five years. um, And that I really wanted others to commit in a very similar way. And I wasn't sure that I was seeing it or would get it from them. Um, And they responded where they were at. And some of them were saying, yeah, I'm not sure that I can commit at that level at this point in time for these particular reasons. Some external, some internal, in terms of how we were functioning as a team.
0: Um, And then you are back at at, uh, the job and back at Leos. And what happens then?
1: um, Then, Of those five of us that were on the team, within a year, three were gone. Um, One got hired away at Microsoft, which I think was really good for Microsoft. And I didn't like it much, but um, he and I are still good friends and, and strong colleagues. So I really respected his decision. Another one I ended up actually laying off when it was clear that we weren't gonna make the budget. Um, That year and the choice was either lay off a faculty or lay off an admin person that I think uh, was a bit redundant. She had the COO position in the organization at the time. Um, And then I think one of her closest colleagues within the system left shortly thereafter, as did her daughter, who actually was uh, heading up our consulting arm at the time. And then the folks that took their place, were folks that were much more committed to uh, the direction that I was saying I believe we needed to to move towards.
0: So what do you believe you were learning at that time about leadership, given that you were essentially in the position of teaching and facilitating students to, to learn about leadership, but you were also leading that theater, that experience. What What is the lesson? What is the... Teaching value for you through through those years through the experience that you are describing. Another deep question.
1: What comes to mind is what I taught as a faculty person, and what I was wrestling with in the leadership role in the system were basically the same. Right. And can I be clear about? my perspective uh, what i believe we collectively are in service of or responsible for knowing that it's not the whole truth but you know it's an important perspective can i inquire into the perspectives of others and at the end of the day declare or hold to a particular direction for the organization working with others around keeping them engaged in that process, either in terms of what's their unique contribution to our work together, what is the the concern or what's missing for them, if they're someone who is concerned that they're not on the bus or that the direction may not be um, correct from from their perspective, to sort of being in the work of a learning community.
0: Right. And I think what I'm hearing in your story is that part of that lesson that was choreographed for you in your own experience was the importance and the need inside the leadership function of becoming clear in yourself and then becoming declared in yourself and to the people you're with and you're leading about what it is that you're seeing and about the direction that you're proposing. And, and the importance of stepping up to that function, a function of becoming clear and becoming declarative, mm-hmm. without which the leadership act is incomplete.
1: Yeah. I know another pivotal moment for me was um, in a faculty meeting in 2006. I got very clear that if... The Leos as an organization was really going to thrive. Um, it was going to be in response to its degree program because that's basically what it was always known for. It's sort of its, its essence, if you will. And the things that I was seeing suggested that uh, if we're serious about that, we need to stop being a separate organization that contracts with the university to deliver this graduate program. And instead we actually needed to merge with the university or merge with the the higher education system and influence it from within. So I talked with my board members about that. And for the most part, they saw it in a very similar way. And in this faculty meeting in February of 06, I remember sharing that with them saying, "This this is where we're heading. We're looking at merging with the university we were currently affiliated with and and these are the steps we're going to take and these are the voices from you that i I want involved in that process and that work and i remember distinctly three of the faculty looking at me and saying over my dead body so it's it's like and that's i think was one of the things i expected because it would mean that they would have to let go of some of the uh, freedoms that they currently had we'd have to take on responsibility for some of the requirements of academia that I don't think we were really holding very well at that point in time. So I wasn't nice. surprised that they would say over my dead body, at which point I said, I, I really appreciate where you are, and I hear your concerns, and um, I have shared with this with the board, and they're actually in agreement with it, and I served the board. And this is where mm-hmm. we're going to go and your voices are still important. And two of you over my dead body folks actually want to start coming to the board meeting so the boards can hear your concern, but this is the direction that we're going.
0: And you are learning through that experience yet again, the same lesson of leadership, I imagine, just at a, at a new level or at a new, with a new context, that leading in a certain direction will always surface resistance mm-hmm. and and if the system is to evolve, there has to be a way to embrace the resistance and make it part of the impetus or the impulse of change and, and evolution uh, as, as the system adapts and evolves to uh, new realities that it is trying to evolve to. Mm-hmm. So at this point, when you now reflect on this significant journey in, in leadership roles with and leading students through the leadership program, Where are you today in your beliefs about what is good leadership and how do we foster good leaders?
1: It's, again, a very timely question given that we're in the process of creating a leadership institute for Saybrook. A couple of things are working me, which is to say that uh, it's not clear to me yet. One is i'm less enamored with the identified role of formal leadership mm-hmm. and i'm more curious about drawn towards the collective leadership and when i think of the function of leadership to me it's the uh, the twin brother of management like the two together are what hold human systems uh, alive management helps to maintain the integrity of the the DNA, uh, that which has been developed over time to to get the system where it is now, and leadership I think of as that that function or that effort to really connect with, engage with, attend to how the system engages with the larger environment. where the information is about what the evolutions or the changes or the the shifts need to be in order for the the right relationship to be maintained over time. And to me, that's less about leadership with a capital L, and it's more about leadership with a little L. Mm. As a member of a system, what's my contribution to paying attention to the larger environment or the relationship of my team, my unit, my organization with the larger marketplace or the community or the region. Like what role am I playing to contribute to the health or what am I doing that's avoiding or not really attending to the challenges to the system based on the external surround. So there's that element that continues to work me. Another has to do with like what kind of leadership? Like there's ethical leadership and there's adaptive leadership and there's like, what's the, the word that most grabs me or works me now. And the one that is sort of foreground for me right now is audacious. It's something about um, going outside the normal way of thinking about things, looking for the surprise. Um, there's a spirit about being audacious that feels life-giving to me. Hmm. Adventurous. So, those are the two things that come to mind in terms of...
0: So, I hear a few premises in what you're saying. The, the first is that all human systems, and in fact, all organic systems are systems that by design, by definition, continue to evolve, continue to change. And therefore, in the context of a human system, leadership must be seen. As a as a function that enables that transition or that process, the process of update, the process of evolution, the, the process of change, whatever way you choose to frame it, and and the leadership not not necessarily the person or the role, but the leadership process, the leadership function, is one that enables that evolution. That's the first premise that I heard uh, hidden or implicit in what you're saying. The second is your reflection that because of the nature of a complex system, it takes a collective or a perhaps distributed, you didn't use this word about it, but I propose that can be right next to it. And that's the idea that when a system or when a group of people or a team or a company goes through a certain project or a certain set of endeavors, then different capabilities may come to the foreground at different times because, indeed, different people will be best equipped to lead those different particular tasks of that phase. In that sense, the role of the formal leader is to enable and facilitate that core leadership or co creative or co collaborative type leadership such that different capabilities and skills come to the foreground exactly uh, when needed. So that's the second premise that I have. And the third is is what you talk to in the idea of audacious. And I wonder if you can qualify that a little more. How do you mean audacious? Is this, do you say audacious because of the the kind of challenges, the kind of tasks that, that are now, uh, in front of all systems, all companies, all organizations? Or, or do you mean this in, in what sense? Say a little more about Audacious for me, please.
1: Yeah, that's good. For me, you know, we live in really challenging times. I, the particular story that I've, I've held or it's working me is, you know, if we don't figure this stuff out, we're toast as a species. So it's big, it's, uh, feels dark, uh, overwhelming, um, uh, insurmountable. So that's the brutal reality. And to, to step into efforts in service of finding a way, tapping into that potential to evolve in, in healing kinds of ways. That's, that's big, that's audacious. It's like, Anybody in their right mind would just roll over and give up. It, you know, there's not a prayer. If you look at the political process, or you look at the, you know, the healthcare system, the education system, it's, it's like all a mess. So to stand up and say, "Well, let's try something," that seems audacious. That's that to me. That releases some kind of energy, some kind of attitude, some kind of. Um, in heart and soul.
0: Right, right. You talk about adaptive systems and and adaptive challenges. One of the revealing observations of complex systems is that the more sophisticated and more complex, the more complex they become, the, the more they seek to intensify the inner connectivity and the velocity of the feedback loop that they generate inside the system. And the, <laughs> the conundrum is that the greater the alignment and the harmony, which naturally the system seeks to build because if everybody more or less agree and, and presents similar alignment in a sense of harmony, then it is tempting to believe that the throughput and the impact of the system is greater and it could be very well be the case for a while but the risk is that when a system comes into a very high degree of alignment and harmony that sooner or later it suffers what i call the fiberglass syndrome the fiberglass syndrome is when two semi-fluid materials interact and catalyze each other to a point that that, that the they intensify the polymerized action, uh, which finally brings them to the arrested state. That's what the fiberglass is. Mm-hmm. You could hypothesize, if you look at the last sixty to eighty years, that part of what you talk about as this moment of crisis, where you talk about education, higher education, healthcare, the political system, the, the it represents a process where some of the, the leading elites in many of these systems with their high ideals and, and aspirations created to a large degree, a system that was locked, was arrested in a kind of a fiberglass state. And when something reaches that state, there is sooner or later, only one option which is something is going to have to give something is going to have to break and we may be experiencing the breakpoint mm-hmm. of that and i am not expressing any political point of view or side i'm more trying to analyze this mm-hmm. from a standpoint of complex systems and looking at uh, at how the world order that was constructed after the second world war and the institutions that were put in place all around the world, reaching a point where it becomes increasingly more difficult for these to carry the day, or you, you can argue that they have reached the, the break point with what's happening in Europe, mm-hmm. with what's happening in the U S and, and so on. But if you are not completely cynical or give in to despair, you could argue that this is how the system, this is the, the only way for a system to rediscover its resilient capacities, its resilient capabilities, just that the process is messy and painful and noisy, but that that, that is where new leadership arising and resilient leadership from the ground up needs to be cultivated. How, how is that narrative Uh, which part of it do you agree with or not?
1: Um, I'm in agreement with all of it. I I have a particular belief that uh, systems change um, in messy sorts of ways. And particularly when the change requires some significant evolutionary shift, some um, perhaps radical way of uh, organizing or uh, processing. And I think we're facing another one of those kinds of moments. I think of Kurt Lewin's notions of the the moment that a system can really change is when it's in flux, when it's not frozen. I think the fiberglass framework reminds me of a system being frozen in place. I I think that, you know, we've got the polar ice ice caps are melting. You know, we've got the whole planet showing us that, yep, we're in an unfrozen state. And I do think that it is in those moments that there's the potential for the imaginal cells to show up or become visible or apparent. Um, So the dark times highlight the souls on deck.
0: Right. Right. So, so that's the context within which you frame the idea of audacious leadership and the call for audacious leadership. Yeah. So do you, is this part of the mission of the, the Institute that you are looking to build that you will be a vessel a place where audacious leadership can uh, be discovered, can be rekindled, can can be fostered?
1: Yes, at this point, uh, we're looking at what, what, if anything, do we have to offer in service of that? So, you know, we're beginning to identify well. we think we've got these particular kinds of trainings that we've been doing for years that provide this particular level of contribution and if we look around to the other folks that are doing you know their own contributions if you will they get their own perspective or lenses um, are these are the ways that we can see what we're doing would connect with complement the kinds of things that we're seeing others do and Hmm. how do we then begin to connect with them how do we begin to play with them so that there's a, a more coherent offering there's a more coherent expression of opportunities to for one or groups to develop these capacities in the midst of everything that's happening
0: that's great that's great you present yourself then as a lifelong learner you've spoken to this often and I've heard you describe the the idea of a lifelong learner and a student of the learning process mm-hmm. so i have five questions that i want to go through these let me run them by you, and then we'll take them one at a time. The first is, what do you attribute your fascination with learning to? And you may have answered that, but I'd I'd like to see if, if we can unearth something new. The second is, what do you believe blocks learning? The third is, what are you learning at this time? Which, again, you may have just spoken to. The fourth is, what are you working on in yourself to learn now? And the fifth is, what do you hope to learn in the next five years? So let me first go back to the, the the first one there. What again, what do you if you try to look at yourself and trace your journey and your fascination with learning, what do you attribute that fascination, that passion to?
1: Word that comes to mind is curiosity.
0: Mm. I'm just
1: I'm a very curious person. And there's something else about um uh, it's not quite humor but it's not taking myself very serious right that might be like humility but there's something about the humor part of it that's important to me and the more that i can stay present to being curious and stay present to holding myself lightly then the less i'm <laughs> likely to end up being uh, an arrogant, judgmental son of a bitch, which I probably have a tendency to be, <laughs> which I don't like much. And I don't like it in others. I think I got that in me. So I'd, I'd rather be curious and hold myself lightly.
0: So would you say learning is something you are, is, is an expression of you running away from something or you running towards something or both? Oh, well, that's good. Both seems true or truest for me right
1: Um, because i do know that when i'm not a happy camper i can get really judgmental and opinionated and egotistical and and i don't like that so i want to keep it in check and one of the best ways i have of doing that is to lean in the other direction and more often than not i am uh, amazed encouraged and inspired by what i learn when i get curious and lean in
0: yes so you may have already now also answered the second question, but I'll ask it anyway. What in your experience blocks learning?
1: Well, me being an arrogant, um, egotistical son of a bitch, <laughs> which to me would be, um, I, I close off curiosity. I uh, focus mostly or only on my particular perspective. I get defensive. And when I'm in those particular stances,
0: um, I'm not learning. What are you learning at this time? What comes to
1: mind is I think I'm relearning. It's like a spiral, and it's around leadership. You know, I've been involved in the organization known as Leo's for you know thirty-some odd years, and all sorts of different iterations around leadership. Then. I stepped away from that. I went back to just doing the teaching, and now I'm back to leading a leadership institute for a university and and what does that mean? Uh, so I think I'm relearning in a hopefully hopefully a uh, a deeper, more complex, more nuanced way. What's the leadership that's needed now?
0: Mm. yes, and I'll ask you the the last two together. What are you working on in yourself to learn about you? And what is it you're working to improve in yourself? And also, if you can bridge from that to then, what do you hope to learn in the next five years?
1: I think it's back to wholeheartedness. Really standing up for standing in my particular perspective in relationship to others. There's been two or three instances in the last three weeks where you know, uh, valued colleagues of mine are sort of looking at me going, oh, yeah, well, what's your position on this? And uh, just remembering Angelus Arians sitting on the, me on the floor and saying, "You can't do it wholeheartedly, get the hell out of the way. So it's, uh, I'm relearning about wholeheartedness now.
0: Right. And, and it seems to me, my guess is that implicit inside it is, is the discovery that co- courageous collaboration and mm-hmm. courageous collaborative work requires that the individuals are courageous on point. We yeah. cannot be courageous collectively if we are not courageous individually. Mm-hmm. We cannot hide behind the, the group. We cannot hide behind the collaboration. I see this in in for-profit corporations in some of the largest companies in the world, some of the most admired companies that we talk about collaboration, but often collaboration is indeed a very important lever that we need to pull on because we are there to produce outcomes and results in an end-to-end continuum type process and challenge that requires us to, to collaborate. Mm-hmm. There are equally situations where collaboration and the discussion of collaboration can be a, a camouflage, a, a, mm-hmm. something, a device we hide behind because we do not want to courageously step up to declare a position mm-hmm. and, and to lead. And so the, that's the insight, that's the realization that I'm getting from listening to you that being wholehearted and, and showing up means that if we expect to be in in courageous collaboration, we need to be courageous in ourselves in the first place.
1: Yeah, well said. think for me, the dynamic uh, that I am paying attention to is um, in moments of uh, engagement with others, am I leading with, this is what I'm seeing, this is what I want, this is what I hope, this is like, am I declaring? Um, or am I sitting back and waiting for the other to declare or inviting the other to declare and then looking for ways that I can connect with that declaration? And right now, it's it's more important for me to lead with my own declaration and then uh, be very curious um, and, and looking for what, what's the connection between the declarations, which is my way of attempting to stay out of that hiding in the collaboration. You just...
0: Right. Fascinating! Uh, this has been, uh, Dan, a, a rich uh, exploration. Yes. Uh, with you today, we yes. we've treasured uh, many threads that uh, you have never shared with me before. But this is what this podcast conversation <laughs> is for. Uh, and um, so, as we bring this to landing, what parting wisdom do you want uh, to offer to people listening to um, create new futures?
1: Well, what comes to mind is. What you had early on in your book, which is you know, leadership is about um, engaging, sustaining the conversation, the conversation that matters. Like that's that's the place that innovation, uh, imagination is possible. Um, and that's what's needed, at least for me and those that I've worked with uh, to take the, the steps that are challenging now. Having that some sense of imagination. Yes. I think is is important for me and others that I work with to take the, the challenging, risky steps to make a difference now.
0: Right. Right. To make a difference now to to enable the transformation that needs to take place requires us to to be imaginative and innovative. And to be imaginative and innovative, we have to be in the conversation. If we're not in the conversation, the opportunity for that innovation dramatically diminishes. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's not just any conversation. To me, it's a, it's a generative one. I'm intentionally engaged in service of finding something new, finding something different. Yes. And I love fact, that you were highlighting that early on in your book.
0: Indeed, indeed. Dan, thank you so very much for this rich conversation, tracing many threads of your life and evolution and uh, with an important parting message. Stay in the conversation so that you can discover the uh, imaginative and innovative capacities in yourselves and and in in the people you're working with.
1: Well, thank you, sir. This has been, uh, this has been good. I think I needed this today. This is a a nice way to start the week. (laughs) Next time we can sit down, you know, souls on deck or over a cup of coffee. This is good, sir.